1: Весь покрытый зеленью абсолютно весь. Остров невезения в океане есть. Остров невезения в океане есть. Весь покрытый зеленью абсолютно весь. Там живут несчастные люди дикари. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Philip Volgac. Joining me today is Dr. Anne Gorsuch from University of British Columbia to talk about her book All This Is Your World: Soviet Tourism at Home and Abroad. After Stalin, published by Oxford. All This Is Your World is a book about tourism in the Soviet Union in the late Stalin era and after the death of Stalin under Khrushchev's regime. Dr. Gorsuch accounts the experiences of Soviet citizens abroad, both domestic abroad, the near abroad, and in Western Europe, and even in the United States. Dr. Gorsuch talks about not just their experiences, but also the purpose of the Soviet Union allowing tourism and what the Soviet citizens themselves were supposed to accomplish while abroad, what they were supposed to teach, and what they were supposed to learn. All This Is Your World is an in-depth look at the everyday life in the Soviet Union. The experiences of the Soviet citizens are recounted fantastically in this book, and it is in the in addition to this transnational trend that we see in history, talking about the Soviet Union within the context of not just the Cold War, but also the Soviet Union within the context of the world. And I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Ann Gorsuch. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
1: Before we move into talking about the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on Soviet history and ultimately how you came to write this project on Soviet tourism?
0: Sure. So uh, I'm a historian of the Soviet Union. I work at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Um, but I came to this in a rather unusual way. I do not, unlike yourself, have any Russian background, Um, and I graduated from Brown University with a degree in history but did nothing having to do with Russia or the Soviet Union. So I did things having to do with France and French and some Spanish. But I went and worked in Washington, D.C. for a few years after I graduated, and it was the height of the Reagan administration, so the early 1980s. And that I ended up working for an arms control organization, working against the MX missile. And I ended up, it was an organization that had to do with scientific exchange and scientists, the Federation of America. American scientists. And I ended up working on uh, with a whole group of Soviet, high, very high-rate scientists who came to Washington, D.C., and uh, quite an experience. Uh, and at that point, it was really very much the Cold War. So we couldn't even take them on regular highways. We had to take them around because things were closed to them. Um, but I got very interested in the Soviet Union doing this work on, against the MX. And I also got frustrated. There were a lot of, I was working with a lot of uh, Congress, congressional offices and Senate offices, and I knew not enough about the Soviet Union, and they knew nothing about the Soviet Union, and I decided I would go back to school and learn more. So I applied to graduate school uh, to. I knew I wanted to study Russia, the Soviet Union, but I had no Russian, so I uh, did it the back doorway and applied to study Western Europe, and the day I got there, I signed up to take Russian courses and to study Soviet history, and uh, here I am. And At first, I thought I'd go back and do more policy work, but I really got excited about the research I was doing. Um, and excited about teaching and uh, stuck with it and got my PhD in Soviet history from the University of Michigan. I've always been interested in studying Soviet history in experiences of daily life. I teach a course now on living under communism. So uh, my first book was on youth in revolutionary Russia. So it was on efforts to make young people communists, but also on their responses to the Russian revolutionary experience at that point. Um, about the night people were working on the 1920s on the new economic policy but there hadn't been a lot of work done on daily life it was mostly about politics and economics i then stalinism is hugely important but i became very interested in, not in sort of the tragedies and traumas of stalinism but again in these questions of daily life what it was like to live in the soviet union on a kind and i became also very interested I was, I was also very interested or stayed interested in transnationalism So, and contacts between the Soviet Union and the rest of the world. In some senses, the, not the things that made it ordinary because it, it was not an ordinary place. No place is an ordinary place, so to speak. But something about those connections, about uh, interactions with the rest of the world, the way they saw the rest of the world, that was present in my first book. I then decided to work on the Khrushchev era. Uh, So Khrushchev coming to power in 53, of course, going out of power in 64. And again, I was interested in questions of experience, Soviet experience, and of connection with the rest of the world. And finally, in trying to say something about the Khrushchev era, Um, the, the way that was most commonly described as being or what was most unique about it was in fact its connections to the rest of the world its opening to the rest of the world and it seemed to me that one of the best ways of looking at that was to look at people who actually traveled Uh, And for the first time ever, Soviet citizens were able to travel. Not all of them, and that's part of what the book talks about, but more and more of them were actually able to cross a border. It's as if you imagine now North Koreans, I suppose, being able to leave and travel and go to the rest of the world. And we'd be curious about why North Korean government was allowing that and what the impact of that encounter with people elsewhere could be.
1: During Stalin's regime, the borders were generally closed, domestically and internationally. You could almost never travel outside the country, sometimes not even outside of your city, especially if you're simply a worker. You would have to be a diplomat in order to travel. So what was the purpose? What was the reason to open the borders in the first place, internationally and domestically? What was the Soviet Union trying to accomplish by this?
0: Um, It's a good question. I would say two things. First of all, I think that the work by uh, Michael David Fox and uh, Katie Clark has shown the degree to which um, the Soviet Union was open, actually, in the 1920s and the 1930s in ways that we might not have expected. Um, to influence interaction with what we call the West. Um, But um, it's certainly true that the people who traveled at that point were generally quite high ranking. Their numbers were limited. They were delegations. There were two groups of workers who went on a cruise around Europe in 1930, and again, I think in 1931, but they were... You know, it was a very hand-picked group of people, very highly regulated, and that was that was the exception. So, um, and things clamped down again quite severely, particularly, obviously, during the war, um, but even in late Stalinism. Um So I have a first chapter in the book which talks about late Stalinism and domestic tourism and the kind of efforts to create good Soviet citizens in part through this domestic tourism. But the possibility for international travel really happens in the Khrushchev era and is first introduced in 1955. Um, There's talk about it a little bit earlier, but it really first comes about in 1955. They start by talking about it as something that's going to happen with Soviet citizens traveling to Eastern European countries, now, of course, a part of a larger Soviet sphere, um, empire, one might even say. Um, and then it becomes, though, the possibility for some to be able also to travel to uh, non-East European countries. Um, and then you wondered why. So I think there are a lot of, lot of different reasons, some of it, but most of it highly political. So some of it has to do with international relations. Um, that Khrushchev era has introduced. has introduced this new idea of peaceful coexistence. The idea that. The Soviet Union and the United States in particular, but also Western Europe, don't have to agree but can peacefully coexist. And um, that means a kind of competition on a different level, a kind of cultural Olympics between the two sides of the Iron Curtain. And in the West, in the United States and Western Europe at this point, tourism is becoming one of the main ways in which they express a kind of certain kinds of modernity people moving, mobility. You can go from place to place. You can consume things. You can see things. So to some degree, it's a com- it's a competition. It's okay. That's what you define as modern. We also see it as modern. And we'll be able to travel and not just travel within the Soviet Union, but elsewhere. Um, it's also in the Soviet Union, uh, a way of performing. So they are these tourists are meant to, and we can talk about this a little bit more, meant to sell the Soviet Union while they're abroad. They're performing Sovietness, whether they're in Eastern Europe or Western Europe. Um, it's also, though, and this makes it a little bit more complex and interesting, an opportunity to buy, so to speak, um, the Khrushchev. Khrushchev way of seeing the world during the Khrushchev era is somewhat more trusting of Soviet citizens. You are people we trust that you are good Soviet citizens to a larger degree. I'm not saying entirely by any means, and that means that there are also things you can learn from the rest of the world. So if you imagine it's kind of like um, the three bears, or what is that? What is the fairy tale where you go in and there's the the, the big house, the big bowl, the little bowl, the middle bowl, right? Um, and uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, that's it. So you don't want to be Stalinist anymore. You don't want to be Western, uh, really decadent, too much, excessive. You want to be somewhere in the middle, a kind of modern, new, consumptive, socialist Soviet Union. And, lear- and traveling is one way of learning how to be that.
1: You said on multiple occasions in your book that travel and tourism for the Soviet citizen was not meant to be, a passive act. It was not supposed to be relaxation, a vacation a holiday. For the Soviet citizen, tourism was supposed to be active, it was supposed to be intentional, and it was supposed to be a deliberate act. So what was the expectation that the Soviet Union, the the authorities had on their travelers going abroad? Essentially, what was the reason to allow tourists to travel? What were they expected to do while they were uh, visiting countries abroad?
0: It's a good question about expectations for them as tourists, and um, I begin by saying a little bit about domestic tourism. So the word tourism in Russian doesn't imply the same things exactly as what we imagine with the English word tourism. It's the route is the same, um, but it's not exactly the same. So even domestic tourism in the Soviet Union was supposed to be very purposeful. So it helped develop your body, strengthen your body um, in preparation, in particular, in the 1930s for an upcoming war, okay, by hiking, uh, canoeing, those kinds of things. Um, but it also made you a better Soviet citizen. You learned about other parts of the Soviet Union. You learned about heritage near you. You learned about Moscow. So it was educational. It was purposeful, and finally, it had a kind of colonialist aspect to it, in that sometimes people were sent from, for example, from the center to the Soviet periphery, and they were supposed to be teaching people, bringing pencils, educating them, making them more Soviet. Um, and the same kinds of things held true when Soviet citizens were sent to Eastern Europe or Estonia, the Baltics, Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe that they were. Uh, it was a purposeful. It was purposeful. They were supposed to be showing uh, showing Eastern European countries, various countries, what it meant to be a good Soviet citizen. They were supposed to behave well. They were supposed to answer questions in the proper way. And they were not supposed to drink too much. They were not supposed to buy too much. They were not supposed to have too much intimate contact, shall we say, with foreigners. Um, so for that reason, they often traveled in groups and they always traveled with
1: a minder. You say that the tour groups often traveled with KGB officers. Uh, what was the purpose of the KGB officers being with these trips? Were they there to enforce a certain Soviet standard, a, a Soviet um, rightness in, ter- in terms of how these Soviet citizens were supposed to act?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll say a couple of things. They traveled with a couple of different kinds of people, and this depended on where they went. If they traveled to Estonia, the Baltics, which was then a part of the Soviet Union, or domestically, they did not travel necessarily have to travel in groups, nor did they travel with somebody whose job was to see what they were doing in quite that same way. If they traveled, for example, let's say you had a Soviet citizen traveling to Poland, they traveled with a trip Uh, You know, someone who was their tour leader, which was not their guide, but a tour leader who was responsible for writing up what they had done, who had done well, what the agenda was, who had caused problems, and that was then submitted to the authorities at home. And I was able to look at those reports. They also travel. I know that in their group were so-called nannies, okay, KGB miners, minders whose job was to report on them. I was unable to get access to those files. So I never saw the KGB files particularly. But even the trip leader reports had all kinds of detail about people's behavior. This was even more the case, obviously, if they were traveling to Western Europe, um, very clear that there was oversight of them and that people were reporting on them, but also clear from, from what I read and the people I talked to that they expected it. Many of them weren't overduly disturbed by it. They were excited to be going, and they just proceeded, and they were themselves behaving with what they thought was appropriate due Soviet responsibility, especially if they're going to Western Europe.
1: I have a question specifically about the expectations of Soviet citizens while they were abroad, what they were expected to get from the trip itself. I'd like to quote what you quoted in the book from a tourist guidebook. One of the quotes was, Familiarity with life in capitalist countries, direct contact with people will help Soviet tourists to understand even better the differences between socialist and capitalist systems, to love their homeland even more strongly, end quote. So did the Soviet authorities, in a sense, hope that the Soviet citizens would dislike their time abroad in order to make them appreciate the home abroad, uh, the home uh, in a better sense? Was there any emphasis on these tour guides taking tours to places that were undesirable, maybe not just to the museums, but maybe dark alleys in Rome as well to demonstrate poverty?
0: That's a really good question. I have no evidence that, tour, that tours were taken to unpleasant places, right, to sort of show them the bad side. It's very clear that when reports were written in newspapers, so there were a lot of travel reports in newspapers at this time, and they would very often talk about, you know the the sort of sparkling side of things, the educative side, the Roman Colosseum, let's say, but also about the poverty, about the dark streets, about the suffering after the war. So in those travel um, reports that were published in Pravda Zhiya, they were they were exactly as you describe. Um, I think for the tours themselves, that wasn't the case. That um, they that they that they had this hope that in some way it would reinforce Sovietness, but but not in quite the way that that quote suggests. I think more in the sense, again, of um, they would teach them what they were supposed to say, how to perform, how to answer questions, and they hoped that that education itself would reinforce their identity, their positive identity. They were allowing them to go for the first time, which I think was also something that in the Krushchev era, at least, was felt to be hopeful. We can travel. They trust us enough, some of us, to travel. Um, and there were things they wanted them to learn uh, about, again, this sort of European uh, heritage Um as well as things they didn't want them to learn. You know, they didn't want them to learn about soda, f- soda fountains and dancing the twist. but That was already in the Soviet Union, but they pretended it wasn't. They didn't want them to learn about sex, about prostitution. They didn't want them to learn about excess consumption, all of which they experienced.
1: You include this really nice vignette in your book where these tourists go to stores and they're shocked by all of these consumer products that they see, and all they can do is touch. They can, okay, they only touch these products because they can't buy any of them. Uh, oftentimes, they actually, um, they actually anger the, the, the people working in these stores because they're just touching and not buying anything. Um, this was mostly because the Soviet citizens had almost no money, and the agencies to which they traveled did not give them extra uh, currency for spending on anything except for the bare necessities. So did you find any evidence of these citizens coming home and being shaken by the fact that the capitalist countries or even um, even countries in Eastern Europe had a much better uh, standard of living? They had many more products. Did you find any evidence of, of them being disillusioned with the Soviet Union upon their return?
0: Um. There is some evidence for that. I I guess I would begin by saying it depends in part on who you're talking about or whose experience it was. So there's a great range of responses to travel, just as there is if you and I went to the same place now, we might experience it differently. So people have different responses. And the Khrushchev era, I think, is different from what happened international travel, foreign travel, in the late 1960s, 70s, and early 80s. So to begin with the the first part, I think there were some people who um, traveled outside of the Soviet Union, be it Czechoslovakia or be it Italy, who were clearly really surprised, and and particularly in some ways, I think, traveled to Eastern Europe, because here was this set of countries who were supposed to be the, the younger brother, right? They weren't as far along, they weren't supposed to be as far developed, and they would show up even in a very war-torn, where war-destructed Warsaw and Poland, and see things that they could not see at home or access at home. And that must have been challenging to notions of Soviet uh, colonial superiority. Um, travel to Western Europe, I think, was more complex in a certain way because they had been told that there were things available under capitalism that were not available in the Soviet Union, but it was explained by the, by politics. There's a lot of poverty. We have more equity, uh, equality. There are reasons they care more about buying things, about having things. We care more about, you know, equality, our Russian soul, uh, you know, uh, about all of our kinds of reasons for being socialist. So it was perhaps easier to explain why there were pet cemeteries. One woman I talked to was just so astonished at the thought of a pet cemetery uh, when she saw one in England. Um, but as she said, this didn't, cha- I wasn't, this didn't change my mind. I was hopeful in the early 1960s about what was going to happen. Khrushchev was telling us that we were going to get to communism we would have socialist consumption would be possible for us. So we would have more things available, but still maintain our commitment to socialism. By the time you get to the late 1960s and certainly the 1970s, when more and more people are able to travel, the Brezhnev era is, as people are starting to research, a quite different one. And there I have a sense of, that when people started, when people were traveling abroad, they were very consciously going to buy things. They were taking as much money as they could possibly find. They were bringing them back. They were selling them. That this was, it is better over there than it is here. And it is the elite who travel. This is a benefit for us. And the system really doesn't work anymore. Um, but this is reflective, I think, of changes between Brezhnev and Khrushchev, and some kind of some kind of hopefulness and really uh, a loss of hope in the future of um, Soviet socialism. But that—that's—that's that's later.
1: You said that not everyone could travel uh, abroad. This isn't something that the average citizen was had accessible. This wasn't that you just sign up and he or she gets to go. People were chosen very specifically, very intentionally for these trips. So who was chosen to go? Because it seems to me that if elites and dignitaries were the ones selected the most, the most often, and composed the largest proportion of these uh, tourists, it seems to me that Soviet citizens were had very little to actually gain from these trips, because it would be a very performative act by the dignitaries and by the elites traveling, as opposed to something that citizens could just, just enjoy while abroad. So I was wondering if you could speak on that. Uh, on that aspect of of travel?
0: Um, Yes, I think there are a number of things to say. One is, if you look at the Khrushchev era from let's say 1955 to 64, in 55 you get about 2000 people traveling. So that's nothing, but it's the first year. Um, Over the period there of the Khrushchev era, you get about a half a million. It's quite hard to count for all kinds of reasons having to do with Soviet statistics, but roughly let's say half a million. About three-quarters of these folks go to Eastern Europe, just to give a sense of it as a whole. But by the 1970s, every year you have about a million people a year traveling to Eastern Europe. And by the 1980s, you have, you know, four and a half million, five million people traveling. So that's still not a very large number in a population of over 200 million people. But we have to remember that in the early 1960s, at least not as many people were traveling from the U.S., for example, either. It was, it was the beginning of the growth of what we consider to be mass tourism. Um, now, a lot of those people were, um, mm, about 40% of them, depending on where you were going, were party members. Um, but that meant that 60% of them were not. Um, and they were a wide range of people, particularly wide range in Eastern Europe, where you had more working-class people going. In trips to Western Europe, absolutely, there was a performative aspect, so it might be everything from a pianist to the head of a high school to you know the head of a factory, but people who were assumed to be loyal, responsible, and had something to say that was useful. Um, when they... But it was advertised widely, so I also came across records of, you know, Siberian nomadic people who traveled to Eastern Europe. Uh, it's not; it wasn't an impossibility. But let's say you wanted to apply to travel, let's say to to Poland again, you would um, see that there was an advertised trip to Poland. They were advertised widely, okay, and you decide you wanted to go. You had the necessary funds because they're not inexpensive, right? They're not completely out of reach, but they're not inexpensive. They also tended to be multiple weeks long. So if you were a worker who had only 12 days off a year, you wouldn't be able to do it. Um, But you decide you're going to go. You fill out a three-page form which says everything about you um if you, have to, if you want to go to France, you fill out a five-page form, which is every detail about all of your relatives and what happened to them in the 1930s if they suffered from repression. Um, not that it was called that in the form, okay? Um, and then you had to have letters of recommendation from people you had worked from. You had to supply Uh, evidence of the necessary funds again. And then the trade union, it went all the way up. It'd go through trade union people. It would go through KGB. It would go through your Oblast level, um, you know, people looking at it to decide whether or not you were able to travel. Um, And certainly at every point it was an uncomfortable process and many people were turned down. Um, And for the first time ever, some people could go. Uh, So it's it's a
1: mixture. It's interesting you say that because it seems that since so many people got to go with every year, it seems to coincide with a level of dissent in Russia at this time. And you can't help but wonder how much international travel and this desire to consume and even sell foreign goods domestically had to do and helped was an accomplice in the growth of dissent in the Soviet Union. I thought that was really interesting. And I know you didn't focus this too much in your book, but I was wondering if you could talk about tourists in the Soviet Union, as in people coming to the Soviet Union from abroad, and how authorities handled those people coming in, what they did for them, what did they show um how do they guide the tours? How do they design these these trips? I was wondering if you could speak more about uh, this aspect of tourism in the Soviet Union. Sure,
0: sure. So in tourists, the Soviet travel agency, is responsible both for travel into the Soviet Union and for travel outside of the Soviet Union. Um, young people travel via the Komsomol, so the Communist Youth League, um, and uh, so there are sort of two major organizations that are, by, The Komsomol has an organization called Sputnik, uh, which is responsible for youth travel both into the Soviet Union and outside of the Soviet Union. So I'm not a historian. I haven't really studied in-depth travel into the Soviet Union, but there are enormous increases in the number of foreigners who travel to the Soviet Union also in this period. Interest starts in the 1920s, um, but but huge increases. And, in fact, one of the reasons that they allow people to travel out is they want people to come in, and they can't be just allowing people to come in. It doesn't look too good in a sort of Cold War context competition. The United States raises all kinds of uh, questions about it in particular, um, saying this means that they're closed, that they're afraid. Um, So they they allow this travel both ways in part for those reasons. Um, And Intourist is responsible for uh, organizing all of the activities of, you know, uh, a French citizen who comes to the Soviet Union and they take tours that almost always, as far as I can tell, include Moscow, but then could be to parts of the Soviet Union um, and um, receive the very best kinds of treatment. Um, it, you know, it's always best to be a foreigner traveling in the Soviet Union if you want to stay in the best hotel and get the best food um, and have access, of course, to special stores where you can um, buy, you know, caviar and anything else that you might want of that nature in the Soviet Union. And it's really important to the Soviet economy. These Soviet visitors, particularly those from Western Europe um, or the United States, of which there are fewer, but bring in hard currency. Um, And this hard currency is used to help support Soviet industrialization and other activities. So they're eager to get tourists.
1: I have a question on the actual infrastructure of tourism in the Soviet Union after Stalin. How did the Soviets actually get abroad? How did this coincide with the growth of technology uh, with planes and plane companies, trains, cruise ships? How did they actually make their way into other countries? Uh, and you have a lot of great vignettes about what they actually thought about travel, because for many of them it's not only their first time traveling, it's the first time being on a plane yeah uh, you know, on a train. so what were the actual recollections of people traveling abroad uh, if you had a need that you worked with?
0: Yeah, I wished I, I wished I could have said something about smells even, you know. I was really curious, like, what does it smell like when you get off the plane or the train? Uh, but no one wrote about that. Uh, so I wasn't able to talk about smells. Because, you know, when we get off a place or a new place, it's a sensory experience, right? Uh, but anyway, there are lots of ways that people could travel. Air flight on um, Aeroflot, so the Soviet airlines, was advertised a lot in newspapers and in journals. Um, I think because it seems so modern. And, it, and in fact, there's a stamp in the Khrushchev era which shows the picture of a plane flying over the world, which I think is a nice contrast to the image of the hammer and sickle over the world. It's now a air, jet airplane that's going to take people. It's going to dominate or conquer the world. Um, and I think probably the example you're thinking of in terms of the airplane is a, a, a woman who goes to travel actually to England. She takes a plane and she's so excited to be on this plane. And she writes all about it in her memoirs and what it's like and how fabulous it is to be there. Uh, now, of course, there's other people who traveled, someone who traveled to France, who was frightened to death by the experience. I don't I think just because it was an airplane, I think because of the nature of his experience on air And he said he spent his entire trip in Paris worried about having to get back on the plane to travel back home. Um, But the truth is not that many people traveled by by airplane. Most people traveled um, by train and some by cruise ship. And the train trips were really long. So let's say you were from Central Asia and they tried to get distributions of people from different republics to travel, especially to Western Europe. You have to travel from Tashkent to Moscow, and then you take a train from Moscow to uh, I don't know where. Let's say you're going to Italy. This is like a multiple-day, long, long, long trip. Um, Very, very tiring. Um, More comfortable for cruise ships. Um, uh, These were comfortable in some ways. They were generally refurbished um european ships one was have formally called the adolf hitler which was renamed i think the victory um and the the right and left taps on it were still you know in german um and the, the in the faucets um, but it was more comfortable to be on the cruise ship. They had multiple levels of service. So in fact, there was a real class differentiation on this ship. The problem with a cruise ship is the problem now, which is that you have a few hours in port, you get off, you wander around, and then you're back on the ship. So they didn't have the same kind of immersive experience um, where they were going. There was no driving across the borders. So people didn't have very many cars. I think this starts a little bit later. There are a few people who start to drive, and there are driving trips in the Soviet Union for foreigner, foreign visitors, actually. It's pretty funny. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not like we imagine that people can get in their own independent auto and take a trip across Eastern Europe, at least in this early period.
1: So interesting reading about international travel in this book, especially because it's It's an integral part of the Cold War itself. It's the first time that the East and the Wet are meeting physically and interacting with each other, the citizens are interacting. What I found interesting, and I didn't know anything about this before, was about domestic travel, and about how after Stalin dies, so many people are actually able to see the countryside uh, or the country in which they live. They're able to go from city to industrial center, to the collective farm, and the other way around, too. And I think that the experiences of the people who travel um were one of shock um sometimes Uh, i think they had really high expectations of what they were going to see and some were shocked by what they saw so i'm wondering if you in your research came across uh any any information about what the people thought about their own country and whether or not their perceptions of the Soviet system changed once they were able to travel, even if it's domestically or to Estonia, you know, the near broadly Soviet bloc.
0: So, um, they are able to travel domestically even earlier than the Khrushchev era. So the, the best, really best source about this is Diane Conker's book called Club Red, uh, which is about Soviet domestic tourism. And she starts um, with the revolution, actually before the revolution, and talking about the history of domestic tourism in the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, clearly, the, and the impacts of traveling from you know Moscow again to Tashkent or wherever. Um, I I looked in my book both about late Stalinism, so travel and late Stalinism, um, which was meant very much as a propaganda effort um, that that people could see, um, particularly the glories of Moscow. They could follow the trail of World War II and and sort of monuments to the war. It was very educative, very purposeful. Um, it doesn't mean that that's how everyone took it. Uh, people also enjoyed themselves. Um, and of course, there's travel, which I didn't talk about too much in my book, a, diff- a very different kind of travel to health resorts, so to sanatoria for healing, for restoration. Um, but I also wrote about travel to Estonia and the complexities of that. So after the war, of course, it's now part of the Soviet Union. Um, And uh, seen as the sort of Soviet abroad. That's the way it's talked about. The domestic, the internal abroad is what Estonia is called. And um, I think that there's um, little doubt that going to Estonia had some impact on Soviet citizens who traveled there, who experienced um, a larger number of things to buy, a certain kind of um, freedom on the street, cafes, better-dressed people, um, access to things that came from Finland uh, in terms of language, uh, a more uh, intellectually and culturally open culture um, at that point. Um, And there were uh, clearly people who wished that that would be true or available in the Soviet Union as a whole. Um, I think, though, we have to understand that that's in part what was wanted by the Khrushchev regime, by many people in the, in the government itself at that point, that Estonia was seen as a model, a place where people could learn from about how to be modern and Soviet, not Stalinist, right, and not decadent like the West, but a kind of more ideal Soviet. Um, and that uh, that so it's it's not that they went and necessarily learned something that was then considered to be anti-Soviet. Um, there were also people who went to Estonia in the 60s who were disappointed by it, who were troubled that it wasn't Soviet enough, who were troubled that they had too much free time to go sit in a cafe or go shopping and weren't offered as many organized tours as that they had hoped for. They'd gotten used to being their days being planned out for them, told where to go, and they uh, were disturbed by that.
1: In your book, you also write about Soviet films, uh, especially those pertaining travel. What did you find in this closing study of the book as to what the Soviets told their citizens through film, through the medium of film, about the abroad and about home? What did the citizens learn uh, through film about tourism? Well,
0: I was trying to build a kind of... Um... I guess you could say, but a kind of concentric circles of starting domestically, traveling to the inner abroad of Estonia, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and then coming home again. And, and, having a way of thinking about tourism for all those people who were not able to craft, to cross a border, an international border, who were armchair, what we might call armchair travelers, right, watching tourism. And film seemed like a, a major way of doing that. That, that images of the tourist of the abroad, and also of a contemporary Soviet Union were shown to people in movie theaters, which films were extraordinarily popular in this period. Um, so I was curious about this image that was shown of the West, of the ways in which it was modernized, integrated uh, into what it meant, again, to be a good Soviet citizen, that uh, Western citizens were not always shown as dangerous or decadent. They could also be shown in terms of peaceful coexistence as people that you could get along with. Um, And they were also aspects of it in certain films were also shown as over the top decadent, dangerous. And this was especially um, films that were aimed against black marketeering in the Soviet Union. Uh, So people who were overly enthusiastic about everything Western. Again, you had to hit that exact middle point, the line of which was perpetually moving. Um, But the films were a way of showing or exploring what was being shown to every Soviet citizen available in a new way on on a movie screen, what the limits of that were, what the anxieties were about what was being shown and how people in that sense traveled uh, without actually having a passport.
1: And thank you so much for joining us. But before we uh, conclude the interview, I'd love to hear about what you're working on now. Where has this project led you? Um, Where have you been taking since writing this book about travel and about the Soviet Union?
0: So I'm currently working on two projects both of them having to do with the Soviet 60s. Um, so I'm working on a book project on the Soviet 60s with Diane Conker. We're co-writing something that has to do with consumption in the 60s. So we're looking at a wide range of topics from weddings to shopping uh, to how people spent their weekends. Um, and, and I'm also writing a project, doing a project on the Soviet Union and Cuba uh, in the 1960s. So I'm particularly interested in a first part on... Um, the Soviet romance of the Cuban Revolution, uh, how they understood what was happening in Cuba, how that was used at home to inspire a certain, uh, uh, inspire kind of revolutionary enthusiasm again in the Soviet Union. Um, And I'm also interested in people traveling to and from Cuba. So Cubans coming as students to the Soviet Union, Soviet citizens traveling there. So again, something of that um, exchange. Um, And I hope eventually probably if I can, learn enough Spanish to do some more of the Cuban side of that uh, that cultural encounter about which there has been strangely um, almost nothing written.
1: And it's so refreshing to see this really transnational approach to Soviet history. Uh, the Soviet Union is, of course, important uh, within the Cold War context, within the World War II context, but it's nice to see it finally being portrayed and not just in the everyday experiences of Soviet citizens, but also in its influence on travel, its influence on Eastern Europe, on Western Europe, and I'm glad to see that you're working on a project that includes Cuba too. And that of course has profound impact on the United States and on Russia. So it's really nice to see, it's really refreshing to see um, the Soviet Soviet history being taken in this in this really new and interesting direction. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us on New Books Network. I am your host in Russian and Eurasian studies, Philip Falgach, and this has been a presentation of Anne Gorsuch's All This Is Your World, Soviet Tourism at Home and Abroad, After Stalin.